Amen. So in the last few messages, I've sought to um, persuade you from Scripture that it's God's desire that one of the most important ways that we're called to express our love for one another is through really committing to one another in the context of a local church. And I've, I've had this big headline I've kind of put up again and again that belonging to the church, belonging to the church, universal, is expressed in being committed to a church local. And that we see that in the Bible in all these different ways, whether it's through the gifts or through the one another's or through the idea of church discipline or through the idea of elders and pastors, that the local church is a real thing that God's calling us from his scriptures, not from me, but that he's really calling us to be part of and commit to and, and walk in. And, and I've, I've started with this passage, which we keep coming back to this epic passage in Matthew 16, where Peter confesses Christ and he receives this revelation from God. Uh, as far as we know, before anyone else among the apostles, he is able to understand the truth about who Jesus is, at least to the point that that's revealed to him. And Peter confesses when Jesus is asking, who do you say I am? That Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says this thing. We have that. If we could go to it uh, in the next slide, verse 18 of Matthew 8, 16. Just go a couple of slides forward, Ed. We should be there. And then Jesus says this, this strange thing in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we, I've tried to I tried to present the first time we went through this passage, what that meant, what it didn't mean. And as I processed through that Sunday, I felt like, um, to be honest with you guys, I didn't feel great about the way I, I preached that. I felt like uh, it was... It was deficient. And today I'm hoping that I can review this passage and clarify some things that I'm not sure I explained well. Um, so what I want to do this morning, really, I, I have just a, a simple goal, which is to try to elucidate this passage. Because it's, it's really important to understand what Jesus is talking about here and what he's not talking about. And I know from interactions with some of you after the message that I think there is something left to be desired in terms of how I did last time. So I'm hoping to, to do a better job of that today. Um, so um, I want to pray again for that as we go because I, I haven't prayed about preaching. So I want to pray for that. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, uh, your word is... A precious, unspeakable gift. Um, your word, uh, through your Holy Spirit, works wonders. It encourages, it enlivens, it refreshes, it builds up, it strengthens, it nourishes, it protects. When your word is honored, your people are loved and cared for. And so I pray this morning that uh, you would work through gifts in me to preach and teach and you would, Lord, work against error in me uh, to do that poorly. I pray that your word would be honored and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this interaction with Peter and the disciples starts with this central question in the verses before where Jesus says, who do, who do the people say I am? And some say the prophet to come. Some say Elijah. 
some say a reincarnation or so, whatever their conception was, that you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Um, that wouldn't have been reincarnation. It would have been a resurrection. And then Peter asked them all, who do you think I am? And, and this is where this moment occurs when Peter confesses the Christ. But, but let's stop and think about that question for a second. Jesus is asking, who do you say I am? Who do you think I am? And, and th this isn't just like an intellectual exercise for Jesus or for the disciples. If you read throughout the Gospels, who Jesus is, is the issue. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the question of who Jesus really is, is the issue. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus is saying mind-blowing things about what is at stake with regard to this question of, of who you or I think he is. He says things like, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Or I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Or, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And I, I could go on with myriad examples, but... I hope it suffice to say that according to Jesus, what one does with Jesus is the most important thing about them. What one does with Jesus Christ is the most important thing about them. And it reveals the condition of that person's heart and the reality of their eternal destiny. This is the consistent testimony of scripture from beginning to end of the New Testament that what we do when we're confronted with Jesus Christ, what we do with him, it reveals the condition of our heart, whether we're God's child or not God's child, and it reveals the reality of our destiny with God, whether we possess eternal life or do not possess eternal life. So the question of who Jesus is, and, and I don't mean this you know, in the broader context, deeper contours of the gospel, deeper, not broader, but in the deeper contours of the gospel, this isn't simply an intellectual exercise, like who did Jesus say he was? Oh, he's the Christ, or an academic answer. Who did you, this is, this is about a trust relationship. This is about a trust relationship. When, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he's not saying it like James says the demons say it. Remember that in James, if you might remember, James is talking about people who just say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but they live as if he didn't matter. And Jesus is, James is telling us God's not fooled by that. I mean, demons know who Jesus is. So it's not simply an intellectual matter of saying, yeah, I, I get the correct Sunday school answer. No, it's, it's do you trust this man? Do you trust him? Do you follow him? Do you, do you believe in him in the sense of trust? and relational commitment, depending on him to be your savior, acknowledging that he is the Lord to be followed, depending on him for the grace to follow him, depending on his 
blood-bought salvation when he poured out his body on Calvary for you, for your sins. The question of who Jesus is in that way is the defining question for all people everywhere. And when Peter answers to Jesus that, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus understands that at that moment, the most essential eternity-defining revelation has come to Peter. And especially for our talk today, Jesus understands that the thing that every soul needs, the understanding of who Jesus is to the point of depending on him, acknowledging him, trusting him, has come to Peter Peter has received the revelation of Jesus Christ and it's going to change his life forever and define his life for eternity. But what happens to Peter in that moment, that revelation from God concerning who Jesus truly is, is not just about Peter. What happens to Peter in that moment in a unique way is not just about Peter. And and this is where... I I want us to try to get into what this word rock means when Jesus says rock. And and this is a, this kind of speaks to some things I think I didn't elucidate well, or just, um, Peter and the apostles are a unique and exclusive and non-repeatable group. And in that sense, Peter, representing the apostles, is a rock or or is the rock. Everyone else in all of human history will need what Peter has and what the apostles have. And everyone else in human history will receive it from Peter and the rest of the apostles. And, And let me try to explain what that means. These eyewitnesses, are non-repeatable. You and I cannot go back 2,000 years ago and be with Jesus. It's, it's done. That part of God's salvation plan was completed in 33 years. It's a non-repeatable era of human history. And Jesus will take these eyewitnesses and he will commission them and send them out into the world. And they will codify, they will enshrine their witness in scripture that we call the New Testament for all generations to come. And that, that New Testament will close. It will be, as Jude says, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And, and this is why Jesus says what he says about Peter and the rock. So try to follow me here. In verse 18, after Jesus confesses Christ, Jesus takes Peter's name, And he uses it to make a play on words. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, which means rock. Now, he'd always been Peter. But Jesus is bringing attention to, I want you to think about your name, Peter. You are Peter, the rock. And then he says, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Peter's name is actually rock in Greek and Aramaic, Cephas, Petros, Kind of like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. It was just his name. What's up, Rock? I mean, that's a pretty great name to have. There was a Rock Hudson movie star decades ago. I don't meet anybody. Probably nobody wants to take the Rock name on themselves right now because of Dwayne. 
Like it's just, there's just not enough room. There can only be one, the rock. But, but in that time period, Peter, Peter had this name. It was rock. And lots of guys were called Petros or Cephas. Um, and, and so when Jesus says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church, he's saying something about Peter. He is. But he doesn't actually use the same form of rock when he says, on this rock. We can't see it in English. But he uses a different form of it. So it's not exactly, it's not exactly Petra there. Um, it's just a slightly different word. And Jesus is cluing us in on the fact that Peter's name is sort of a metaphor, a type of a representation of that thing upon which he will build his church. So what does Jesus mean when he says, Peter, hey, rock, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Peter's revelation of Jesus Christ. I've stated before that Jesus is not making Peter the first pope. There's nothing in scripture about any singular head of the church except for Jesus Christ. Nor is he making Peter the boss of all the other apostles. We see Peter being rebuked by Paul in Galatians for a a slip on the doctrine of the gospel of all things. We see Peter taking directions and counsel from the church in Acts uh, 15. Uh, and, And we see Peter being sent for missions. So Peter's part of the church, receives direction, receives correction from the church, from other apostles. But what I did not do a good job of explaining is that does not mean that Peter is not unique. And and I think it's Peter's uniqueness, in particular as an apostle, that we understand what Jesus means when he talks about building his church on a rock. When Jesus says, Peter You're the rock, you're you're a rock, and on this rock I will build my church. I believe he means that Peter, in his role as an apostle, called to bring eyewitness testimony about Jesus, as an apostle, uniquely and unrepeatably able to bring eyewitness testimony along with the other apostles about Jesus, which was given to him directly by Jesus or by God through the Holy Spirit, that that role will be foundational. The role of these apostles will be foundational. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church is built on, quote, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's rock language. And I think it's telling us a lot about what Matthew 16, what this passage is talking about that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. This is rock language. A rock is a foundation. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. On this rock, on this foundation, I will build my church. The prophets are foundational too. They're the Old Testament witness of God's revelation. And the apostles are the New Testament, New Covenant, authoritative revelation about what God has to say to us, what he has to reveal to us. Every building needs a foundation. A foundation is weighty. A foundation is supposed to be secure. A foundation is supposed to be stable. A foundation is supposed to be strong. It anchors and sustains the whole building. And this is what the apostles are to the church. They are uniquely foundational to the mission of God. 
And the New Testament makes this clear that the apostles, these men that Jesus called and sent out are unique and non-repeatable and authoritative. They are a rock because of what they tell us about Jesus and because of the authority their witness has. Try to follow me here. You and I can bear witness about Jesus. We can tell people about what Jesus means to us, how we feel like he's met us in prayer, how he's changed our lives. And that's really important. That's crucial. But we can't be a witness about Jesus in the way the apostles could. We have not been with Jesus since the beginning. We have not seen with our own eyes the resurrected Christ but the apostles could do this. And Jesus makes clear in the New Testament that that's what it means to be an apostle. In John, among some other things, in John 15, 27, Jesus says to the apostles, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. In Acts 1, 8, when the resurrected Christ is revealed himself out of the tomb, Before he leaves earth, he says to them again, you will be my witnesses. You've seen me. When Paul is defending his apostleship to the Corinthians, he says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? When Peter is encouraging the church in his letter, his second letter, he assures them with this experience he had of the transfiguration of Christ that he saw with his own eyes. And he said this, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He uses that same word Jesus used in John's upper room, eyewitnesses. We saw this, this really happened. And Peter says this, when he received, and he speaks about this transfiguration experience, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. The apostles were Jesus' eyewitnesses. They have brought us firsthand accounts, primary source accounts. We get so used to certain things as, as Christians, as Bible readers, going to church, listening to sermons, talking about John, Matthew, Peter, that I think one of our biggest dangers is familiarity, breeding not necessarily contempt, but kind of a dullness. This is extraordinary. These men saw someone come out of the grave and they died. They were murdered saying it was true. Not giving up on that truth. It meant something massive to Jesus that he had people who could vouch for him with their own eyewitness and earwitness testimony. Listen to how the Apostle John starts his first letter. We know lots of verses in 1 John. God is love. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. But this is the way John starts everything off. Listen to this, what he's trying to say about who John is. Here's John's letter trying to essentially say, listen, here's why I'm here. Here's why I'm here. 
He says this in his first letter at the very beginning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. He's talking about Jesus. He's saying we heard him with our own ears. We saw him with our own eyes. We looked upon him. We've touched him with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and which was made manifest to us. That's which we have seen and heard. We proclaim also to you. That's a pretty unique way to summarize the non-repeatable exclusive role of these apostles and why Jesus calls them by, by zeroing in on Peter here, the rock. They were to tell the world about Jesus from their own personal witness. And upon their personal witness, Jesus decreed that the church would be built. And, and this, we're living this miracle out. This is amazing to me. Hundreds of thousands, not millions of churches around the globe today are doing the same thing that Jesus said would be done. They're building their church on the rock of the apostolic witness. They're taking out Peter. They're taking out Paul. They're taking out John. They're taking out Matthew. And they're trying to build lives. They're trying to build hope on that witness. It's what we do every Sunday when we read the Bible. It's what you do every morning when you, Lord willing, when you open your Bible. When Luke begins his gospel, he, he explains that he wants the readers to have certainty. He wants them to have certainty. But he doesn't, he doesn't just say that I want you to have certainty. He says, I want you to have certainty because I received the truth about Jesus. And he says, from those who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. He's talking about the apostles. Luke is saying, this book I'm writing to you, Theophilus, it's reliable because it comes from people who were really there, who really saw and heard this incredible thing happen. This is what Jesus has given to us in the apostolic testimony, in the word of these men. It's a rock, a rock to build a billion eternal lives on. And this is Jesus' plan from, from his, whole, his whole ministry. This was his plan. In, in John 17, there's this beautiful prayer. And in the middle of that prayer, Jesus says this. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them. He's talking about these apostles. This group of 11 guys at that point. And for their sake, I consecrate myself meaning I'm giving myself to the cross, that they also may be sanctified in truth. They need my salvation to do this job. And then he says this interesting thing in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is extraordinary. At this point, Jesus is dividing all of his people for the next 2,000 years at least into two groups. 
the apostles and everyone else who will believe in him through their word. The church is built on the rock of the apostles' testimony. This is how it has been built and is being built for 2,000 years. You all call it the New Testament, but it is the testimony of real people, real men who really saw Jesus and who really died, almost all of them, murdered for that witness. And so when Jesus says, to you I give the keys of the kingdom, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's too complicated. If we get the rock thing, if we get the reality that their message is going to go out into all the world and their message is going to reveal Jesus to people and their message is going to give people the opportunity to receive eternal life and to reject the message and be condemned, then I think it's easier to understand what he means when he says, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. He's saying, this message about me that you are about to proclaim will open the doors of the kingdom of heaven to everyone who hears and believes. That's what he's saying. Everyone needs this message, men, and I'm giving it to you to give to the world. And of course, hundreds and thousands and millions of people will take that message and re-give it and re-give it. But I'm giving it to you guys. You're the ones who are gonna codify this message What do keys do? What do keys do? They open. They open. And the apostles, through the preaching of the truth about Jesus, whether the apostles did it in the first century through their testimony, or whether they do it through you as you retell the story that they told at work, at home, to your children, the doors of the kingdom of God are opened by that message to all who receive, receive the truth. When Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, I believe that he's referring to entrance or prohibition from the kingdom of heaven. To be loosed means to be freed. Through the gospel of Christ, the doors of the kingdom of heaven are loosed, are opened. Free people come into God's kingdom. Freed people. But if the gospel is rejected, then those who reject it are bound. They're forbidden from God's kingdom. And then we looked a few weeks ago at Matthew 18 and how God, then Jesus again talks about the loosening, binding activity of the, of the local church where, where we receive people into the church. We affirm these are God's children these are our brothers and sisters, like we did with David and Alyssa. It, 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 you know, we, 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 we made a silly slide or I made a bad slide and we talked about some things and it was kind of fun and we laughed a little bit. But that is a really big deal, what happened this morning. The Lord has given this church an authority. He gave it to all of us, not just a pastor, to say to David and Alyssa, you are, we affirm, you belong to the Lord. You are brothers and sisters. You are part of God's family. And the Lord gives to the church, not just to elders, but to all the members of the church, the ability to say, you, we cannot consider you to those who will refuse to repent of their sins and who will reject appeals to turn back to Jesus. God gives to the church the authority to say, we cannot consider you part of God's kingdom. 
right? We, we, we talked about that at length a couple of weeks ago, so I don't want to belabor that too much. But, but that's what's happening. But, but this, is all based on, this is all based on the apostolic message, right? Like if, if we're trying to figure out any important matter in someone's spiritual walk, we're going to run to the Bible, hopefully. We're going to run to the New Testament and we're going to look to Jesus through his apostles to understand what we should do in a, in a situation of someone's spiritual health or rebellion. So, the apostles have this unique gift to bring eyewitness truth about Jesus to the world. The church has been using it for 2,000 years. It was uniquely given to them. That's what it means that, that the church is built on the rock, the rock of the apostolic witness. Does that make sense? And the keys of the kingdom come from that reality. If the apostolic witness, if the message about Jesus Christ gives people the opportunity to become God's children and to enter his kingdom, then that explains what it means to have authority to open the kingdom of heaven to people. And if it also becomes the arbiter of of whether they will receive or reject, then there's a sense in which the message of the gospel to those who reject it, 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 it affirms the closing of the door when people reject it. So, so this, is, this is what it means to, to be the rock. It means to be an apostolic witness. That's not an opportunity we have for ourselves, but we benefit from it. We're built on it. So what's the application here? Well, one application is just, I think, just gratefulness and awe. Jesus said that, Upon this rock, he will build his church and the gates of hell would not be able to overcome it. Would not be able to withstand it. For 2,000 years, the church has survived all efforts from inside it, whether, whether it's legalistic Pharisees in Galatia bringing a false gospel who were thwarted by the apostolic witness of Paul or deniers of the divinity of Christ who who were thwarted by the African bishops in the 300s who were using the apostolic witness and testimony or papal corruption and and distortion of the gospel that was thwarted by Martin Luther in Europe as he he read the apostolic witness of Paul or the so-called higher critics in the 20th century in the 18 and 1900s who denied the resurrection but who've been thwarted by really brilliant scholars in the 20th century who've held on to the truth of the apostolic message. This is what Jesus promised would happen. Some of us have studied and grown up appreciating the founding fathers and what they did at the Constitutional Convention with our founding documents. Jesus is really wise. And we can look at what happened there and know that, well, if a great nation needs founding fathers to make founding documents that they can come back to again and again when attacks and strife and internal, uh, internal division and error come, and they can return back to those constitutional documents. How much more should the people of God have a strong foundation of truth they can turn to again and again in the storms that come upon 
the church. The rock of the apostles' testimony is the founding document of our church. The apostles are the founding fathers of the church. And that testimony has indeed withstood the gates of hell and sustained the church just as Jesus promised up until this day. And it will continue too. I think another application is, is stewardship. This is really important. The, the message of Jesus Christ delivered to us through the apostles is the only authoritative revelation of Jesus. This is the implication of many passages, one like John 13, 20, when Jesus says about the apostles, truly, truly, I tell you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Whoever receives the one I send, by the way, that's the word, whoever receives the one I apostle, I ap apostle means sent one. Whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. I hope that God sent me to be a pastor for you in this season. I hope, <laughs> but there is no doubt that God sent John to be an apostle to you. There's no doubt that God sent Paul to be an apostle to you, that he sent Peter and Matthew to be apostles to you. So, yes, read John Piper or C.S. Lewis or great teachers from CCEF or Elizabeth Elliot or Nancy Lee DeMoss or um, Tony Evans, whatever author you take to. And we need those guys and, and those ladies. We, we need help from teachers to understand what God is saying. But you know, the best ones always go back to scripture. They always go back to the apostolic message and to the Bible. And they root that out and help us see what those apostles said. So, so read them. Keep reading Dane Ortland or whoever it is you need because man, I need those books too. But stay close to Jesus as he has shown himself through Paul and Peter and John and Matthew because they are his chosen apostles. C.S. Lewis is brilliant. I love him. He's not one of God's chosen apostles. I totally believe he is my brother in Christ. <laughs> he was a better Christian than me and I'm gonna see him in eternity. but he's not an apostle and I'm not an apostle. These apostles were the ones who saw Jesus, touched him, saw him cry, saw him walk on water, saw him get out of the grave, saw him die for the sins and, and on the cross. And, and they're the apostles who, almost all of whom were mar martyred, as I said before, staying true to what they knew to be true. So struggle with your Bible, wrestle with your Bible if you have to, but stay close to it. Every other teacher, every other conception of God, every person who has a sense of who Jesus is, whether it's you or me or Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, must be faithful to the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. They must be faithful to Jesus revealed by his chosen apostles as they've proclaimed him to us through the scriptures that they have written through the Holy Spirit.
There's more we could talk about. I, 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 I wish that I had more time and more, um, more preparation to talk about some of the apologetic strengths of the New Testament, the eternal evidence that commends the New Testament as true, where the disciples consistently self-deprecatingly are honest about their weaknesses and sins, the archeological confirmations that have gone again and again throughout history, the unity of the scriptures, that there is one voice over thousands and thousands of years, 66 books from Old Testament to New Testament, that the voice of Yahweh can be seen to be the voice of Jesus, the same philosophies of life and judgments about the nature of the universe and existence. We've mentioned the blood of the apostles. We could mention the changed lives of millions of people. But what we really need most of all is for the Holy Spirit to help us hear these words and believe them, understand them. That can happen in a moment. That can take years. But let's stay close to God's witness, to these men and the apostolic message they have given for our nourishment and defense. May we read it. May we pray it. May we preach it. May we find ourselves heeding it so that it will preserve our souls and give us grace to speak the truth to others who need Jesus. Amen.